Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 17. That can be found on page 822 if you're using the, the black Bibles. As we come to the beginning of Matthew chapter 17, let us seek to enter into the context and understand what the disciples are, are going through. If you've been with us through our recent studies there in chapter 16, uh, at this point the disciples are no doubt confused about what Jesus has been telling them. Uh, I would imagine they're discouraged, maybe disillusioned, because if you recall, by, by God's grace, the disciples had recognized, they had confessed even that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God's promised king who has come to deliver his people. But then as soon as they confess that, um, I'm sure they were thinking, all right, Jesus, let's, um, what's, what's the plan here? Let's, let's draw up a, a strategy of how we're going to go overthrow the Romans, right? And how we're going to take back uh, Jerusalem and restore the kingdom of Israel. But rather than Jesus talking that way, remember he immediately started telling them that he must go to Jerusalem um, be rejected and suffer at the hands of the, the religious leaders and even die. And then he told them that he would be raised from the dead. But they were stuck on that suffering and death part. And that's why you had Peter actually rebuke Jesus and then Jesus rebuke him because he was not setting his mind on the things of God, rather the things of men. And so that's right the con- in the context of where we are. Because Jesus was, uh, remember... Um, Telling them, yes, this is the Father's plan for me. The Son of Man must go and suffer these many things and be killed and be raised. But then he didn't just leave it there. Remember, he also extended it out and said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So in other words, not only is it God's plan for his Son, the Messiah, to suffer and die, but all who would follow after him must be willing to to suffer for the sake of Christ as well. And so, again, the, the disciples, I mean, their, their world's kind of been t- turned upside down. Their worldview of the Messiah and his mission has been turned upside down here. And that's right in the context where we're at, because you see in chapter 17, it begins, and after six days. So, I mean, they've had a few days to kind of ruminate on this, right? On what Jesus has just been t- explaining to them. And so I can imagine that they've probably been thinking things like, I know what Jesus said, but I still don't understand how God's king uh, can suffer and die. You know, maybe, again, of course, Peter's already been rebuked for this, but maybe they're thinking, you know, maybe Jesus is mistaken, or maybe we're mistaken. Maybe Jesus isn't, in fact, the Messiah. Maybe he's not who we thought he was. And so then, now here in chapter 17, we see God's grace to the disciples, specifically to the the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, because God is not going to leave them in this state of of disillusionment, in this state of of confusion. Rather, God is going to graciously let Peter, James, and John witness a taste of the glory of Jesus in order to give them, the disciples, assurance of who Jesus is. And so as we open up this text together, study this passage together today, 
Um, there may be some of you who need that same kind of uh, grace, that same kind of uh, encouragement, affirmation about who Jesus is. Perhaps some of us have lost sight of the glory of Jesus. Perhaps some of us are not yet convinced about the glory of Jesus. Maybe you're sitting there today and you're not convinced about the uniqueness of Jesus. Yes, my parents, they, they drag me to church. Or yes, my spouse is all in, into worshiping Jesus. But for me, he's not really that big a deal. For me, he's, you know, he's, he was obviously a kind man, a good teacher. I understand a lot of people follow him. But you yourself maybe have not been convinced of the uniqueness, of the authority of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that this passage today, will God will uh, speak through his word to you today. And that your eyes, the eyes of your heart, will be open to see and embrace the glory of who Jesus is. That you will see that he is someone who is worth believing in, embracing as Lord and Savior. He's someone who's worth uh, totally, as, as we heard last week, um, giving control of your life to of following, even of suffering for his sake, that he is worthy of that. And so let's um, look at the verses that we want to study today. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And I'd ask you, please, once again, to stand in the honor of God's word. And please follow along as I read our text. Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. Well, if you're taking notes today, I I changed the title of the sermon. You know, sometimes as you're fleshing it out, you, you realize there was a better way just to kind of capture kind of the direction today. And so uh, the title of the sermon this morning is Behold His Glory. Behold His Glory. 
In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle John, no doubt thinking about this very event and, and others that he had witnessed, wrote, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. On that mountain, John got to behold the glory of Jesus. And today, friend, you and I, through God's word, we, like Peter, James, and John, have the opportunity also to behold the glory of Christ. And so, when I entitle the sermon, Behold the Glory of Jesus... Behold his glory. Please understand, that's what our soul desperately needs. Right? It's not just, oh, you know, we need to come here and kind of do our, do our thing and check a box. Or, oh, we need to have a sermon that's interesting enough to kind of keep our attention for the next 30 to 40 minutes. No, this is what our soul needs. We need to behold the glory of Christ. We need to be captivated by who Jesus is. We need to meditate on the glory of the person of Christ and the work of Christ. This is what we were created for. If you're in Christ, this is what we've been saved for. To behold the glory of Christ. And so that's my prayer today, that God will help us do that. And I have three headings for the sermon today. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, as usual. (laughs) But the first heading, if you want to take notes, is glorious confirmation. Glorious confirmation. In verses 1 through 8, the true identity of Jesus. Remember, I think that's what the disciples were struggling with. Is he the Messiah? Is he not? He's talking about suffering. So no, and through this event, in, in the first eight verses, the true identity of Jesus is going to be confirmed to Peter, James, and John in a glorious way. Really, in three glorious ways. Okay, so let's look at verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up on a high mountain, just the four of them. And as you read through Scripture, you know that special things tend to happen up on mountains. (laughs) And, And Daniel read one of those occasions earlier for us. Just as Moses saw the glory of God on a high mountain, so too Peter, James, and John are going to be privileged to see a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Verse 2, and he, speaking of Jesus, of course, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Here's the first way of this glorious confirmation. It's just that his physical appearance was transformed before them. There on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before the three disciples. Transfigured means transformed. It's the word uh, from which we get our word metamorphosis, right? To, To change, to transform. This same Greek word, by the way, is used in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and Romans 12.2. And in those passages, it describes the inner transformation of the believer into Christ's likeness. But here it's Jesus' physical appearance that is being transformed before the disciples. It says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as 
light. We haven't seen the sun too much lately. Praise God for the rain. That's been so exciting, right? But we saw it yesterday. I really got out and, and, and was just reading and studying out there and soaking it in. We're seeing it today. Praise God. Think how bright the sun is. Think how, how it shines so brightly. And that's how Jesus' appearance was changed. His clothes, his face became so glorious that he literally shone like bright light before the disciples. So this was amazing. Right? Because Jesus most of the time looked like, just like a, a man, a humble man. But here before them, they're seeing the majesty of Jesus. And, and so what, is, what exactly is happening here? Why, why is this happening? What are the disciples seeing? Well, I think they're seeing two things. Number one, the disciples are catching a glimpse of the divine nature of Christ. Remember, Jesus is the glorious, eternal Son of God. Right? That's who Jesus is. God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God. And so he's always been glorious, yet to carry out the plan of salvation, Jesus took on a human nature. He didn't give up his divine nature, but he added to himself a human nature. He voluntarily humbled himself and veiled his glory in humanity, Philippians 2 explains, right? And matter of fact, that's what we've been celebrating during this Christmas season of how, of how the eternal Son of God became a man in order to save us. Well, here on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's like that, that veil of humanity has momentarily been lifted. It's like the disciples are getting to see behind the curtain, so to speak, of who Jesus really is, of who he, how he has always existed as the glorious Son of God. And so the glory of Jesus that was always there has been allowed to shine through. We could say the disciples caught a glimpse of the eternal divine nature of Jesus. Remember in John 17 when Jesus is praying, um, his prayer right before he goes to the cross to the Father, he talks about, restore unto me the glory that I had with you um, from, from of old, right, from before. And so something of that great glory that Christ had known with the Father before incarnation is here made manifest to the disciples in Matthew 17. Now, think back to the Old Testament. Think of when Moses um, would go into the tent of meeting and meet with the, the presence of God. Remember, what, what happened to Moses after he had those meetings with God? Do you remember? His face would shine, right? He would come away from the tent of meeting and his face was, was shining. Why? Well, he had got to be in the very presence of the glory of God and now it's like that glory had, had reflected onto Moses, radiated onto Moses. So Moses is reflecting not his own glory, but the glory of God, right? And, and then it would eventually fade until he met with him again. But see, this is different with Jesus now because Jesus is not reflecting someone else's glory. This is Jesus' own glory that is shining through, right? Because he is the eternal son of God. Jesus is, is glorious by his very nature, by his very person. 
Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. So it just reminds us that Jesus is God. He is the eternal Son of God. And that day on the mountain here in Matthew 17, the disciples were seeing a glimpse of how powerful and glorious Jesus is. That's important for them to remember because, again, Jesus is talking about, hey, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And so it's like they're, they're being shown, hey, th- this doesn't take away from the, the glory of who Jesus is. Don't misinterpret his meekness for weakness. Don't think that, oh, his rejection means he's not glorious. No. His humiliation and suffering still... Um, points to his glory. It points to his power. It's, it points to God's plan and what God is doing. So the transfiguration not only showed the disciples, number one, the true glory of Christ's person, but it also provided a glimpse of the future glory of Christ at his second coming. Look back at the end of chapter 16. Remember, Jesus had just told his disciples a few days ago in 1627 For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, right, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So again, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to earth the first time as a humble servant to save his people by dying on the cross as a sacrifice for their sin. But we know Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose again on the third day and ascended to the Father's right hand where he's reigning now from his throne in heaven. And the Bible teaches Jesus is coming again. And this time when he comes, it will not be as a humble servant. It will not be as a helpless babe. Rather, it's going to be as this glorious risen king, as Lord. And at his return, at his second coming, King Jesus will conquer his enemies. He will gather his people. He will complete his kingdom by creating the new heavens and the new earth. And the disciples were were getting a sneak peek of that. That's what the transfiguration was. It was was giving them a glimpse of King Jesus in his glory, of of his kingdom that he's, he's inaugurated, of his kingdom that he's starting to build, the glory of that kingdom. They were getting a glimpse of it because, again, they're thinking, Messiah is going to do this physical kingdom. We're going to overthrow the Romans. And now Jesus says, no, actually, I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and die. And so they're thinking, well, man, this is not at all what we expected. This is not at all very powerful and glorious. And they're completely wrong. (laughs) It's more powerful. It's more glorious than they could have imagined. It's not just somebody being a military leader and, and, and conquering physical enemies. No, it's going to be Jesus this first time conquering the the spiritual enemies of of sin and death and Satan. And then when he comes back the second time, yes, it's going to be a a physical conquering as well. And so they're getting a glimpse of of the glory of Christ and his return. So that's the first way his identity was confirmed. But not only did his appearance change, but then beginning in verse 3, we see a second confirmation of Jesus' glorious identity. Look at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So now Peter, James, and John see two people, two guys with Jesus talking with Jesus. And it's Moses and Elijah. Now why Moses and Elijah? Why these two guys? 
Well, they serve as a summary of the Old Testament, right? Moses was the great lawgiver. Elijah was, was one of the great prophets. And so scriptures are often summarized as the law and the prophets. And so their presence there was a testimony to who Jesus is. Their presence there was showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Their appearance confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one that the entire Old Testament has been pointing toward. And that's what Jesus has been teaching uh, the crowds and his disciples as well, right? I mean, that's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't think that I've come to abolish the, the scriptures. Rather, I've come to fulfill them. Remember in, in Luke 24, it records after Jesus has died and he's just been raised from the dead. Remember that story on when he meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and those disciples are all discouraged because, man, Jesus died. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to, again, you know, uh, kick out the Gentiles. And, and so they're discouraged and they don't know that it's Jesus. And remember what Jesus does with them? He shows them from Scripture. Well, I'll just read it to you. Um, Luke 24, 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scripture the things concerning himself. So see, by the way, it just seems like the, the Jews of that day... They, in the Old Testament, they, they picked out the parts that talked about the Messiah coming and, and conquering and establishing a glorious kingdom, but they missed the parts that talked about him suffering, right, the, the suffering servant. But my point to you now is Moses and Elijah represent what is true, and that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that it's all pointing toward him. The law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, talked about God's plan of salvation, and it explained in increasing detail that the Messiah would suffer and then enter into his glory. And so here in Matthew 17, two of the most prominent characters of the Old Testament are testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he's going to be rejected and killed, but he is the Messiah. This has been God's plan from the beginning. This is what the law and the prophets taught. So again, this should have encouraged Peter, James, and John, right? Hey, even though Jesus is talking about suffering, even though he's not doing things the way you had envisioned they would happen, he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. He is God's king who's going to rule forever. And so as the disciples take all this in, Peter speaks up in verse 4. Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. One of the... I can't remember if it's Mark or Luke, but one of the uh, uh, parallel accounts say that Peter said this as it appeared, right when it appeared that Moses and Elijah were about to leave. And so people like to pick on Peter, right? You know, I mean, he's a good whipping boy because he is impulsive and he says things and he sticks his foot in his mouth and we certainly saw that last week. But I tend not to be too hard on him on, with this one, right? And I know Luke's account is going to say he doesn't know what he was saying, but I don't know, maybe I'm just trying to see the good in him, but... I, I think, for one, I think he had good motivations in the fact that he's just saying, man, let's keep this going, right? I mean, this is great. This is amazing. Don't leave, guys. Just stick around and let, let's, let's keep this party going, 
right? I'm enjoying this. But even in addition to that, I tend to think that Peter was, was wanting to celebrate the Feast of Booths. That was one of God's appointed feasts from the Old Testament where the Israelites were to live in tents for seven days and, and it was a way to thank God for his provision and how he provided for them when they were in the wilderness. But in addition to that, it, it also pointed forward to the coming kingdom. It reminded the Israelites that they were strangers passing through and it, it became a picture of the great in gathering and rejoicing at the kingdom of God on earth. So perhaps Peter had that in mind as well. He thought, man, the kingdom of God has in fact come. I, let's celebrate the, the Feast of Booze. Let's just, Jesus, let's just skip all this suffering part. Let's, let's just start the final kingdom right now. And again, if we want to talk about Peter not knowing what he was talking about, maybe it was that, that he didn't understand that the kingdom of God was coming in two stages. That Jesus here in Matthew 17 or, you know, ever since he began his ministry, he was inaugurating the kingdom of God, right, by, by um, uh, showing the signs of the coming kingdom and then ultimately by delivering his people from sin and death by dying on the cross and rising again and reigning in their hearts. He was inaugurating the kingdom of God. That was the first stage, but then again, the second stage, the final stage would happen at his second coming. And Peter didn't understand that yet. All right, now in verse 5, the disciples receive a third type of confirmation, right? They've had Jesus' physical appearance change. They've had uh, Moses and Elijah appear. But now, verse 5, while Peter was still speaking, and so again, maybe that does kind of point to the fact that everything he was saying wasn't being real helpful. But what happens? A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, again, we know from Scripture, that we heard it in our Scripture reading, that this cloud, the cloud um, often is a manifestation of the glorious presence of God. Right? And in fact, this verb uh, overshadowed, a bright cloud overshadowed them. That's the same verb that's used in Exodus 40, 35 to describe the cloud of God's glory that filled the tabernacle with the glory of God's presence. And then that same verb is used again in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11 to describe the glory cloud of God's presence uh, filling the temple. And so here, once again, we have this cloud, the Shekinah glory of God's presence coming down on the mountain. And so what we have here is a visit from God himself, from God the Father, coming to this mountain. And God speaks from the cloud, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. One commentator had said this was like God the Father's amen to Peter's confession back in chapter 16, right? Remember when he said, you are, the, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here's God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. You're right, Peter. Jesus is my Son. Jesus is my promised King whom I've sent to earth to save my people. Listen to him. And that word listen means not only hear, but obey him. 
Well, what did they specifically need to be listening to Jesus about right now? Well, about Jesus explaining how he had come to suffer and die and how all who would follow him are called to suffer as well. And so they need to listen to Jesus regarding the necessity. Remember, he must suffer many things regarding the necessity of his rejection and death and of their participation in his suffering. So it's like God the Father was saying, yes, Jesus, my son, my beloved son, is going to be rejected. Yes, he's going to suffer and die, but he will be raised from the dead. He is my son. I love him. I am well pleased. He is carrying out my plan. Listen to him. So as Jesus walks down this path of rejection and suffering, don't think that he's mistaken. Don't think that he's, he's doing something wrong. No, he's doing exactly what I've called him to do. So listen to him. Verse 6 shows the disciples' reaction to the voice from the, the crowd. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. That's always what you see happen when the glory of God shows up, right? Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The glory of Almighty God. So they're terrified, faces in the dirt. Verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is there alone. And that, again, testifies to his unique status. And some guys say, and again, I don't know what all Peter was thinking, but some say if Peter erred in any place with his booth suggestion, or it was to make three tents thinking, hey, you know, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, these are three guys kind of on the same level here. No, no, no. Jesus is on a different level. Moses and Elijah have, are gone now. They, they were pointing to Jesus. They testified to the unique status of Jesus. Elijah and Moses have no permanent standing, but Jesus remains. The, the witness of Moses and Elijah culminates in Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So again, remember what, when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Oh, some people think you're Elijah, some one of the prophets, some Jeremiah, right? No, Jesus is not just one of the prophets. He's not one of many great prophets like Islam teaches. No, he is the unique son of God. He is the eternal son of God. He is the only savior and Lord and this whole experience, verses 1 through 8, has been confirming that in a glorious way. The, the transfiguration, the changing of his appearance, Moses and Elijah, the cloud, the voice from heaven, that all of that should have left the disciples with no doubt at all, Jesus is God's promised king. He is God's son. It was a glorious confirmation. Our second heading then is impending suffering. In verses 9 through 13, once again, we're going to see Jesus teaching on his impending suffering. Right here at the end of 16, it was a turning point in 
not only the Matthew's gospel, but it was a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Right now, the focus of his ministry is going to be on teaching the disciples, preparing the disciples, and heading for Jerusalem. Preparing them for what he must do. Impending suffering. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Because, you know, this whole, this whole glorious confirmation, yes, that would have totally confirmed to the, these three, Jesus is the Messiah. But in one sense, it didn't necessarily solve the problem because if, if ever they were pumped up for Jesus to, uh, thinking he's going to go and overthrow the Romans, they, they probably was even now, right? Because they're saying, wow, we, he's even more glorious than we realized. And so Jesus says, don't be telling people what you saw because you don't understand it yet. You don't have the right lens through which to view it yet. You need to understand where I'm headed, right? And, and the fact, again, that I'm going to die on the cross. I am going to be raised. And after I'm raised, and, and then we know after he sends the Holy Spirit, right? Then you can proclaim it. Then you'll have the right lens and perspective through which to view all of this. Then you'll understand my mission. So after my resurrection, after the sending of the Spirit, you won't need to be silent. Matter of fact, I'm going to commission you. I'm going to empower you to be my witnesses, to go to the ends of the earth and proclaim it. But at this point, I need you to be silent. Now, again, the disciples, these three, I think they're still, they're still trying to figure all this out. And I know that from the question they're about ready to ask. They, I think they have no doubt now that Jesus is the Messiah. They've already confessed it. And then maybe they were thrown for a loop a little bit uh, at the end of 16. But now it's been like a slam dunk confirmation. Jesus is the Messiah. But they're trying to figure out how is it that the Messiah is going to suffer and die. That still just didn't compute in their, in their worldview. I mean, the glory and power of the Messiah has just been demonstrated to them. And so that makes all this talk of impending suffering and death all the more baffling. How could this one whose face shines like the sun, whose clothes are dazzling white, who is the divine son of God, how could he keep, being, keep saying he's going to be killed? And so they ask about Elijah. You might say, what? what does that have to do with anything? Well, let me explain. Verse 10, disciples say, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Of course, they've just seen Elijah, so yeah, Elijah's on their brain a little bit, but it's, it's more than that. The scribes, who were the ex- experts of the Old Testament law, they said that Elijah must come before the Messiah, and they had reason for saying that. Back in Malachi, the last prophet, right, the last chapter of Malachi, the last prophecy that we have in the Old Testament, Malachi verses five, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, speak of before the great day of the Lord, Elijah would come and begin to restore all things. So now 400 years have passed, and for 400 years, the Jews have awaited the return of Elijah, because ultimately they're awaiting the return of Jesus, and they know that Elijah is supposed to be the forerunner to the Messiah, or excuse me, I said they're awaiting the return of the Messiah, and they know that Elijah has to come first, right? So the disciples, for one here, with this question, are trying to piece together the chronology. Jesus, we know you're the Messiah, but Elijah was supposed to come first, so why haven't we seen Elijah already? Okay, he'll explain that. But their question is more than just the, 
chronology of things. I think they have a theological question here as well. Malachi 4.6 says that Elijah will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and children to their fathers. Elijah was to bring about a state of justice and true worship. Elijah would have this ministry of, of restoration that would lead to the Messiah bringing in... Well, let me back up. The, the thinking of that day, as this 400 years have passed, have they, as the, they've been trying to interpret Malachi, the thinking was... Okay, this Elijah is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Elijah is going to start this, this restoration. The Messiah is going to bring in this perfect restoration, this perfect messianic age. And so that's going to be a time when Israel's enemies are defeated and there's absolute peace and righteousness restored. And so again, it goes back to this suffering dilemma. It goes back to this trying to understand the Messiah's mission. How could the Messiah be rejected and killed if Elijah was to kick off this time of perfect restoration. That's what they're trying to figure out here. We thought Elijah was supposed to restore all things. So if he's the forerunner to the Messiah, how can then the Messiah be killed? That doesn't sound like things being restored. You see what they're saying? Jesus answers their question in verse 11. Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Verse 13, then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So this Old Testament prophecy of Malachi 4 was fulfilled not by a second coming of Elijah himself. Remember, Elijah was taken into heaven, he never died. It's not Elijah himself who's going to come, but rather the forerunner is going to be someone who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And John the Baptist was an Elijah-like character. Remember how he came out of the wilderness and he dressed all crazy like Elijah did and spoke powerfully and was kind of wild, right? So John the Baptist is this Elijah-like character who does, who is the forerunner to the Messiah And John the Baptist did start this process of restoration, but it was not a restoration of the entire nation of Israel like the scribes and the Jews of the day thought it would be. Instead, through John the Baptist's preaching, those who had ears to hear repented and were baptized and their hearts were being prepared to embrace Jesus as Messiah. So Jesus here is explaining to the three John the Baptist has come. He didn't fail. He did what he was supposed to do. His ministry was a success. But notice his important point, the important parallel he's building between John the Baptist and himself, Jesus is. By and large, verse 12, the people did not recognize John, but did to him whatever they pleased. By and large, the people mocked John the Baptist. They imprisoned him. They ultimately killed him at the hands of King Herod, right? Likewise, Jesus says, the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. You see what Jesus is saying to Peter, James, and John. Understand that I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, not to overthrow the Romans, but that is the way my Father has ordained the restoration of all things. Again, understanding Christ's mission. How is he restoring all things? Not by leading a military conquest. 
but by dying on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, restoring people to their creator through his perfect and complete sacrifice. The disciples had in mind a glorious military conqueror, but Christ's glory would be seen in redeeming his people by his death on the cross. Quickly, again, I started off saying, I wonder if there's some here today who don't recognize the glory of Jesus. You, you know some of the stories about Jesus. You know that you know, he had a special birth and, and, and you know, he was a good teacher and maybe even though he died on the cross. But maybe you don't understand the glory of Jesus, that he is the eternal son of God, the glory of how his, in humility and love, as we talked about on Wednesday, he who was rich made himself poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross And what looked to the world like weakness, what looked to the Jews like blasphemy, was in fact a glorious and mighty deliverance that Jesus was paying for the sins of his people, that he was doing what we ourselves could not do. He was making his people right with God. And so now all who will turn from their sins and by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, will be reconciled to God. By nature, we're all sinners. And by nature, we're all separated from God and headed for eternal punishment. But through faith in Christ, we are made right with God, and no one else can do that. Only through Jesus Christ. And so not only is he our only Savior, the only Savior, No other name given among men by which we must be saved. But he is Lord. He has conquered sin and death. And so if you have not turned from your sins and embraced him, I pray that you will. I pray that you will. Because apart from Christ, you're still separated from God. Apart from Christ, you're still in your sin. And one day you will stand before the risen Christ. And then it will be too late to enter into his kingdom. But he is gracious and he offers entry into it now through faith. So please turn and believe. And if you have questions about that, I'd be happy to talk with you more. And then in closing, we have one more heading. And again, it'll be quick. But I need you to turn to one more passage. Please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. My exhortation to us today is to behold the glory of Jesus. Peter and James and John got to behold it that day on the mountain, and Peter wrote about it. Peter, under the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit, recorded this for us in 2 Peter chapter 1, that's page 1018. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he talking about? Well, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
And we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You see, he's talking about what just happened in Matthew 17. Peter's writing about it later. Now, having seen Jesus die and rise again and ascend to heaven to his heavenly throne. But I need everyone to look carefully at verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I entitled this third heading simply, The Word of God. How do we behold his glory today, loved ones? It's through the word of God. Peter gives a testimony, again, of what had just happened here in Matthew 17, a transfiguration. And then Peter, speaking to Christians, exhorts us, believers, to pay attention to the glory of Christ recorded in Scripture. We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to. We have the miracles and teachings of Jesus that Peter and the other disciples experienced, we have those recorded for us. Plus, we have the God-breathed teaching and preaching of the apostles recorded for us, where they, led by the Spirit, proclaim all that Christ's life, death, and resurrection means. They declare how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies, types, and shadows. They proclaim how the risen Christ is building his church now as the gospel goes forth. They declare that King Jesus is coming again to complete his kingdom and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what Peter is saying is that in the pages of Scripture, we see the glory of Jesus. We see his deity. We see his love for sinners. We see his compassion for the needy. (coughs) We see his power over demons. We see his wisdom over his adversaries. We see his perfect obedience to the Father. We see his willing suffering, his effective sacrifice, his triumphant resurrection. We see his future return in glory. And so Peter says, pay attention to it. I'm losing my voice. (coughs) (coughs) Peter says, pay attention. Behold his glory in the word of God. Well, I had more to say, but maybe that's a sign we should stop. <clears throat> Let us daily read the scriptures. Let us daily behold his glory. Focusing on Christ. Look at verse 19. He's a, like a lamp. Shining in a dark place. This is a dark world, isn't it? We live in a dark world. And we still battle remaining darkness in our hearts. And so we need desperately to behold his glory. We need to pay attention. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the light of the world by studying the Bible, by being captivated by the person of Christ, by rejoicing in the work of Christ, by meditating on the promises of Christ, and by longing for the return of Christ. This was convicting, right? Peter says, pay attention. You would do well to pay attention. What are you paying attention to? 
loved one. What are you paying attention to, brother and sister in Christ? What are you, be- what are you beholding? <laughs> what am I beholding? Are we beholding the glory of Jesus Christ in the word of God? Or are we beholding TikTok and all this nonsense? What do we spend our time beholding? And I pray that this passage encourages you. And with this, I will close. Remember what happened there in Matthew 17. Jesus' glory, (laughs) when he got to see a glimpse of who Jesus really is, he said, this is so great, I don't want to leave. I just want to stay here, Peter said. But it, it was temporary, right? It was, okay, we got to go back. Be encouraged, loved one. One day, we'll get to bask in the glory of Jesus forever and ever and ever, right? When he comes again, we'll behold his glory. We'll embrace and worship him as our Savior and Lord, and there will be no end to experiencing the glory of Jesus. So be encouraged, because he's coming again. But as we wait for his return, by God's grace, let us behold his glory in the pages of Scripture. We need it. You know what happens when we do it? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, As we behold the glory of Christ, we are changed to become more like him. And that's what we need, isn't it? And I close with 1 John 3.2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. He truly is the king of glory. He is the savior of all who believe. He is Lord and he is the coming judge. And we praise you for the kingdom that he has begun. And we pray his kingdom would come. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Let's stand together.